Voluntarist Handbook, a collection of essays, excerpts, and quotes by Keith Knight. To Edward Stringham, Ph.D., a man who values truth, freedom, morality, and leading by example. Introduction There exist two blatant contradictions which roughly 99% of intellectuals, journalists, and voters erroneously believe. On the one hand, they say that the free market must be regulated in order to prevent monopolies. It is assumed that these monopolies would have such great power over the market that their customers would be forced to settle for products far more expensive than, and inferior to, those that would be offered under competitive market conditions. On the other hand, these intellectuals, journalists, and voters explicitly advocate that one group, government, monopolize the money supply, policing, courts, taxation, legislation, compulsory education, and a myriad of other things that we may consider to be vitally important. Second, the vast majority of people recognize the moral legitimacy of the biblical commandments, thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not murder. Yet, when it comes to the practices of taxation and war, these principles are blatantly disregarded by almost everyone. If taxation is not theft, why can only governments do such a thing? Why not simply allow all organizations, companies, clubs, churches, or individuals to issue taxes? It should therefore come as no surprise that governments are infamous for delivering poor quality. Imagine a restaurant where you had to pay regardless of whether they brought food to your table. Likewise, war is simply a euphemism for theft-funded mass murder, a blatant crime that we would never dismiss if non-government actors were to engage in it. What if justice required us not to have double standards? This book seeks to dispel the belief that morality applies differently to government employees. If it is immoral for me to do something, say, conscript people to perform labor against their will, how can I justifiably vote for a representative to do such a thing on my behalf? Many real criticisms apply to the free market. Greed, envy, dog-eat-dog -dog mentalities, short-sightedness, etc. The problem with all of those criticisms is that they apply many times over to the state, since, by definition, the state does not face competition and one cannot opt out of funding it. While voluntarily funded competing organizations may have shortcomings, they are preferable to the coercively funded monopolies of the state. The following collection of essays, excerpts, and quotes has given me the intellectual capacity to stop hating people based on arbitrary differences and to focus on what really matters. Should I achieve my ends in life violently with threats, or voluntarily with persuasion? The corporate press will explicitly seek to divide people of goodwill based on gender, income, race, nationality, and any numerous other interchangeable sources of division to suit their agenda. No longer should we tolerate such an obvious scam. These passages, which can be read in any order, are what convinced me to abandon statism and embrace voluntaryism. 1. What is the free market? Murray N. Rothbard, Ph.D. Murray Newton Rothbard, 1926-1995, was an economist, scholar, intellectual, and polymath who made major contributions in economics, political philosophy, libertarianism in particular, economic history, and legal theory. 
He developed and extended the Austrian School of Economics based on the earlier pioneering work of Ludwig von Mises, Ph.D. Free market is a summary term for an array of exchanges that take place in society. Each exchange is undertaken as a voluntary agreement between two people or between groups of people represented by agents. These two individuals, or agents, exchange two economic goods, either tangible commodities or non-tangible services. Thus, when I buy a newspaper from a news dealer for 50 cents, the news dealer and I exchange two commodities. I give up 50 cents, and the news dealer gives up the newspaper. Or if I work for a corporation, I exchange my labor services, in a mutually agreed way, for a monetary salary. Here the corporation is represented by a manager, an agent, with the authority to hire. Both parties undertake the exchange because each expects to gain from it. Also, each will repeat the exchange next time, or refuse to, because his expectation has proved correct, or incorrect, in the recent past. Trade, or exchange, is engaged in precisely because both parties benefit. If they did not expect to gain, they would not agree to the exchange. This simple reasoning refutes the argument against free trade typical of the mercantilist period of 16th to 18th century Europe, and classically expounded by the famed 16th century French essayist Montaigne. The mercantilists argued that in any trade, one party can benefit only at the expense of the other, that in every transaction there is a winner, and a loser, an exploiter, and an exploited. We can immediately see the fallacy in this still popular viewpoint. The willingness and even eagerness to trade means that both parties benefit. In modern game theory jargon, trade is a win-win situation, a positive sum, rather than a zero-sum, or negative sum, game. How can both parties benefit from an exchange? Each one values the two goods or services differently, and these differences set the scene for an exchange. I, for example, am walking along with money in my pocket but no newspaper. The news dealer, on the other hand, has plenty of newspapers but is anxious to acquire money. And so, finding each other, we strike a deal. Two factors determine the terms of any agreement, how much each participant values each good in question, and each participant's bargaining skills. How many cents will exchange for one newspaper, or how many Mickey Mantle baseball cards will swap for a Babe Ruth, depends on all the participants in the newspaper market or the baseball card market, on how much each one values the cards as compared to the other goods he could buy. These terms of exchange, called prices of newspapers in terms of money, or of Babe Ruth cards in terms of Mickey Mantles, are ultimately determined by how many newspapers, or baseball cards, are available on the market in relation to how favorably buyers evaluate these goods. In shorthand, by the interaction of their supply with the demand for them. Given the supply of a good, an increase in its value in the minds of the buyers will raise the demand for the good, more money will be bid for it, and its price will rise. The reverse occurs if the value, and therefore the demand, for the good falls. On the other hand, given the buyer's evaluation, or demand, for a good, if the supply increases, each unit of supply, each baseball card or loaf of bread, will fall in value, and therefore, the price of the good will fall. 
The reverse occurs if the supply of the good decreases. The market, then, is not simply an array, but a highly complex, interacting latticework of exchanges. In primitive societies, exchanges are all barter or direct exchange. Two people trade two directly useful goods, such as horses for cows or Mickey Mantles for Babe Ruths. But as a society develops, a step-by-step -step process of mutual benefit creates a situation in which one or two broadly useful and valuable commodities are chosen on the market as a medium of indirect exchange. This money commodity, generally but not always gold or silver, is then demanded not only for its own sake, but even more to facilitate a re-exchange for another desired commodity. It is much easier to pay steelworkers not in steel bars, but in money, with which the workers can then buy whatever they desire. They are willing to accept money because they know from experience and insight that everyone else in the society will also accept that money in payment. The modern, almost infinite latticework of exchanges, the market, is made possible by the use of money. Each person engages in specialization, or a division of labor, producing what he or she is best at. Production begins with natural resources, and then various forms of machines and capital goods, until finally, goods are sold to the consumer. At each stage of production from natural resource to consumer good, money is voluntarily exchanged for capital goods, labor services, and land resources. At each step of the way, terms of exchanges, or prices, are determined by the voluntary interactions of suppliers and demanders. This market is free, because choices, at each step, are made freely and voluntarily. The free market and the free price system make goods from around the world available to consumers. The free market also gives the largest possible scope to entrepreneurs, who risk capital to allocate resources so as to satisfy the future desires of the mass of consumers as efficiently as possible. Saving and investment can then develop capital goods and increase the productivity and wages of workers, thereby increasing their standard of living. The free competitive market also rewards and stimulates technological innovation that allows the innovator to get a head start in satisfying consumer wants in new and creative ways. Not only is investment encouraged, but perhaps more important, the price system, and the profit and loss incentives of the market, guide capital investment and production into the proper paths. The intricate latticework can mesh and clear all markets so that there are no sudden, unforeseen, and inexplicable shortages and surpluses anywhere in the production system. But exchanges are not necessarily free. Many are coerced. If a robber threatens you with your money or your life, your payment to him is coerced and not voluntary, and he benefits at your expense. It is robbery, not free markets, that actually follows the mercantilist model. The robber benefits at the expense of the coerced. Exploitation occurs not in the free market, but where the coercer exploits his victim. In the long run, coercion is a negative sum game that leads to reduced production, saving, and investment, a depleted stock of capital, and reduced productivity and living standards for all, perhaps even for the coerces themselves. Government, in every society, is the only lawful system of coercion. Taxation is a coerced exchange and the heavier the burden of taxation on production, the more likely it is that economic growth will falter and decline.
other forms of government coercion, e.g., price controls or restrictions that prevent new competitors from entering a market, hamper and cripple market exchanges, while others, prohibitions on deceptive practices, enforcement of contracts, can facilitate voluntary exchanges. The ultimate in government coercion is socialism. Under socialist central planning the socialist planning board lacks a price system for land or capital goods. As even socialists like Robert Heilbronner now admit, the socialist planning board therefore has no way to calculate prices or costs or to invest capital, so that the lattice work of production meshes and clears. The current Soviet experience, where a bumper wheat harvest somehow cannot find its way to retail stores, is an instructive example of the impossibility of operating a complex, modern economy in the absence of a free market. There was neither incentive nor means of calculating prices and costs for hopper cars to get to the wheat, for the flour mills to receive and process it, and so on down through the large number of stages needed to reach the ultimate consumer in Moscow or Sverdlovske. The investment in wheat is almost totally wasted. Market socialism is, in fact, a contradiction in terms. The fashionable discussion of market socialism often overlooks one crucial aspect of the market. When two goods are indeed exchanged, what is really exchanged is the property titles in those goods. When I buy a newspaper for 50 cents, the seller and I are exchanging property titles. I yield the ownership of the 50 cents and grant it to the news dealer, and he yields the ownership of the newspaper to me. The exact same process occurs as in buying a house, except that in the case of the newspaper, matters are much more informal, and we can all avoid the intricate process of deeds, notarized contracts, agents, attorneys, mortgage brokers, and so on. But the economic nature of the two transactions remains the same. This means that the key to the existence and flourishing of the free market is a society in which the rights and titles of private property are respected, defended, and kept secure. The key to socialism, on the other hand, is government ownership of the means of production, land, and capital goods. Thus, there can be no market in land or capital goods worthy of the name. Some critics of the free market argue that property rights are in conflict with human rights. But the critics fail to realize that in a free market system, every person has a property right over his own person and his own labor, and that he can make free contracts for those services. Slavery violates the basic property right of the slave over his own body and person, a right that is the groundwork for any person's property rights over non-human material objects. What's more, all rights are human rights, whether it is everyone's right to free speech or one individual's property rights in his own home. A common charge against the free market society is that it institutes the law of the jungle, of dog-eat-dog, that it spurns human cooperation for competition, and that it exalts material success as opposed to spiritual values, philosophy, or leisure activities. On the contrary, the jungle is precisely a society of coercion, theft, and parasitism, a society that demolishes lives and living standards. The peaceful market competition of producers and suppliers is a profoundly cooperative process in which everyone benefits, and where everyone's living standard flourishes compared to what it would be in an unfree society. 
and the undoubted material success of free societies provides the general affluence that permits us to enjoy an enormous amount of leisure as compared to other societies, and to pursue matters of the spirit. It is the coercive countries with little or no market activity, notably under communism, where the grind of daily existence not only impoverishes people materially, but deadens their spirit.